Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Though Halloween and the Mexican Day of the Dead are only a day apart, the holidays differ greatly in tradition and tone. Halloween is associated with mischief and the macabre while the Day of the Dead festivities are joyous and colorful. In cities and towns throughout Mexico, people may wear funny makeup and costumes, hold parades and parties, sing and dance, and make offerings to lost loved ones. Day of the Dead originated several thousand years ago in pre-Hispanic Mexico. Later this hour, we'll learn about another ancient Mexican tradition, the musical style of San Jarocho. Filmmaker Kabir Sigal will tell us about his documentary on the subject, Fandango at the Wall. First, a treat for Halloween. Lucas Quan Peterson is a James Beard award-winning columnist and video producer for the Los Angeles Times. He wrote a column last week about trick-or-treat candy that he describes as the totally unassailable, airtight, and indisputable L.A. Times Halloween Candy Power Rankings. He joins us now via Zoom. Lucas Quam Peterson, welcome to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when I read your column on candy rankings, that famous line from Jerry Maguire came to mind. You had me at hello. <laughs> I thought this writer could be my friend, kindred spirits. Lucas, would you read the first paragraph? Halloween, like goodness, happiness, and truth, is largely canceled this year, which I can only describe as a full-to-bursting septic tank that has been emptied in your living room, filled again with flesh-eating scorpions, and then dumped into your mouth while you're asleep. See, I think you deserve another award, a literary award. <laughs> 
for that paragraph alone. And then you go on to write that we can still have a little fun and candy remains a comfort to everyone. So please, before we get into the rankings, would you tell us about the metrics? Well, part of what I think is fun about ranking highly subjective comfort foods associated with people's childhoods is that obviously there is no definitive empirical way to do it. And so I I like to joke that this is extremely scientific, absolutely unassailable, totally indisputable, but obviously everyone has their favorite candy from childhood. Everyone has very strong feelings about something they ate when they were five or six or when they were in the back of their parents' car. So that's sort of the the basis for the 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 jokiness, the silliness of this kind of uh, indisputable quote unquote ranking. With Halloween candy in particular, I think it was important to talk about the spirit of Halloween. I think there are certain candies that are more Halloweenish, uh, if you will, that just sort of capture the spirit of the fall and crunching leaves and changing seasons more than other candy. So I tried to rank it by how it feels as well as taste. And then I tried to rank it as well by trade value, because as as everyone knows, back in the days when we were allowed to go outside and do things, at the end of the night, you'd sit down, you'd dump your stash onto the ground <laughs> with, the, with the kids, and then you would start to trade. You would start to barter because certain things you got, you know, certain things the other kids didn't get certain things you wanted, you have your favorites and you know, you want to try to get that Snickers bar and you don't like those Hershey's kisses and you're trying to unload something on your little brother. And so, you know, so there's a lot of back and forth and certain candies are just worth more than other candies. Yeah. You have 31 rankings. I couldn't agree more about your number one ranked candy. I think Reese's peanut butter cups, those are the classic. That's just, that's what you go for first. That's what you reach for, you know, in the bag. The first thing when you start your uh, candy eating uh, Bacchanal later that night. And what makes them perfect? It's just, it's, it's really everything. It's the wrapper. It's the color scheme. It's the crinkly black paper. It's the kind of grainy saltiness of the peanut butter, which is, you know, objectively bad peanut butter, but it really works in the context of a peanut butter cup. You know, if you fill a peanut butter cup with normal, regular peanut butter, it just wouldn't be the same. No, and there is something about the peanut butter to milk chocolate ratio that is perfect in a Reese's. You mentioned don't even think about eating an artisanal peanut butter cup. Yeah, the times I've had those, I think they sell them at Trader Joe's or, or whatever. It's just, it's just not the same. It's, you know, I, I don't always like to tout the superiority of like industrial manufactured things, but, but Reese's peanut butter cups are, you just can't really improve on it. Um, there, there are different ways to eat it. You kind of nibble off the sides and then you save the middle for the end. You know, there's, everyone's got their own technique. It's just, it's just the classic, it's just the classic Halloween candy in my view. And Kit Kats? 
You know, Kit Kats too. I I think of Kit Kats. Kit Kats are not normally my favorite, but there's something about a Kit Kat at Halloween. It just it shoots up toward the top of my rankings. You know, for this particular time of year, and. I think it might be something as simple as as the orange color, or or something as simple as the name, which sort of evokes, you know, cats at Halloween. But you know, for whatever reason, I just associate Kit Kats with Halloween. I think other people do too, and it's it, there's just something nice about you know, kind of being able to pick, you know, sort of pick off the layers, the wafer one by one with your teeth and. You know, for me, it, it just, it similarly just kind of evokes home. <laughs> now, the first four of your rankings are all chocolate. When we get to number five, you depart. I am a fierce proponent of chewy, fruity candies. I, I really love them. I think they definitely are some of my favorite candies to eat. I like Starbursts and Haichus, which are sort of the Japanese version of a Starburst, but which is actually better than a Starburst. I like those better than Skittles, but I still do love Skittles. But I do a sub-ranking within the Starburst where I rank the, the, the regular flavors of Starburst, and I have them ranked strawberry, cherry, lemon, orange. I think the orange Julius comparison with an orange starburst is a good one. Um, I maintain the superiority of the strawberry starburst, but I'm willing to reconsider my position on orange. I, I do love those kind of candies. I, I love the fruity candies. I'm, I'm intrigued. Do you even have a romantic story linked to the starbursts? <laughs> this is very sweet. <laughs> well, well, so... I, Maybe you or, you know, your listeners are familiar with the idea of like folding paper cranes to give to people that give to someone you're in love with. Or back when I was in high school, there was a girl that I liked that sat in my calculus class and I had lunch the period before and I would always buy a pack of Starbursts. And you get that rectangular shaped wax paper and I would fold little paper boats one by one, and I'd, I'd give them to her during the course of class. I wish the story had a happy ending. Uh, that relationship didn't happen, and I almost failed out of the class. So, so let that let that be a lesson. <laughs> let that be a lesson to everyone. M and M's, you have a bone to pick. Well, it's really. I mean, I think peanut M and M's are are pretty unimpeachable as a Halloween candy, especially. But I don't. The color scheme, I really have a problem with when they introduced blue, and I don't know when they did that, but it used to just be these classic fall colors, red, orange, green, two different kinds of brown, if you remember, that dark brown and then sort of that lighter tan. It was just like autumn leaves, and then they go and they put blue in there, and that, for me, kind of erased some of the magic with M&M's. But, but M&M's are still very good. Oh, I love them. But, you know, blue is indeed an odd color to put into the mix. Lucas, what are some other highlights for us? Well, let's see. You know, Snickers are a classic. I, I actually quite like Whoppers. I like, I like malt balls. Oh, uh, yeah, me too. A lot of people don't. I, I think a lot of people associate them maybe with the movie theater. So that 
There are certain candies that I think Raisinets, Junior Mints, Whoppers are kind of seen as movie candy. It's interesting to me that certain candies sort of evoke certain environments. But I love Whoppers. I love malt. Malt has an interesting story. Like, like a lot of things that were invented, it was done as sort of like a digestive or touted as some sort of health food. But it's just got that really great kind of toasty flavor. And I, I love malt balls, malted milk. I love malt in milkshakes. But I think that's a, an underrated candy. Um, Snickers, of course, everybody loves. Tootsie Pops. Tootsie Pops, I think, are far superior to Tootsie Rolls. Why? Is it the addition of, you know, another flavor in the candy shell to sort of complement that vaguely chocolate, chewy center? You know, I think Tootsie Rolls in and of themselves, you can't really eat more than one. Oh, I could. And see, when I was a little kid, uh, the Tootsie Pops were an exercise in patience and self-discipline for me because I really was very eager to get to the Tootsie Roll in the middle. There you go. And there's and there is, of course, the classic commercial with Mr. Owl, who also could not be bothered to lick the Tootsie Pop more than three times before he before he crunches into it. Do you remember, <laughs> do you remember that commercial? I do. And I just think of dentists throughout the world cheering that on, you know. Just, um, yeah, rack up a few more cavities for us. It was interesting to me that you included Baby Ruth. I mean, talk about a product mature in its life cycle. That thing's been around for ages. And you never see commercials for Baby Ruth's. Baby Ruth's have have been around forever. Uh, I, I this is now off the top of my head. I think after like Teddy Roosevelt's daughter Ruth is that. I think that's the origin of the of the name, not the baseball player Babe Ruth, which is right. But I think Baby Ruth is a very good candy bar. I have it kind of in the middle of my ranking, but I think it's good. I don't like the fact that the nuts aren't salted on the Baby Ruth. I think that that, that could be a big improvement. I don't include Payday, but I mentioned Payday. I think Payday is a superior candy bar because it's extremely salty and you get that nice salty sweet combination. But mm. but Baby Ruth is a good is a good candy bar. <laughs> you have candy corn ranked as 23. I just read that Lewis Black said all of the candy corn in existence is left over from when it was made in 1911. Do you agree? <laughs> there may be something to that. It is very interesting to me that any time of year, you could eat a Snickers bar in the middle of April. You, you can eat, you can buy Baby Ruth's and Butterfingers any time of year. You only see candy corn at Halloween. You know, how, what would you, if you wanted candy corn, you know, during the 4th of July, would you be able to find it? It's definitely a very divisive candy. There are people who love it or who claim to love it. But I always maintain that, well, if you really love this candy, you would eat it throughout the year, not just once a year. Really? 
Never got it. It's got a great color scheme, but I the taste, it just tastes like tacky, cheap frosting to me. Wax. Yeah, absolutely. I was intrigued with something you mentioned under item 13, sweet tarts and smarties. Lucas, have you really gotten out a bottle of flavored Tums when you felt hungry? You like chalk? No, but I, I, as a kid, as a kid, I would eat Tums or vitamins because <laughs> they were good. They were kind of tasty. Or, or children's Tylenol. <laughs> oh, God. You know, children's Tylenol kind of tasted good, too. Oh, I bet yeah. your parents had a time keeping the lock on that medicine cupboard for you. Yeah, they love that. No, I, but it's it's in the it's in the same vein. It's just kind of like sweetened medicinal chalk. It's it's not it's not very good. But I but I sort of associate it with with being a kid, and and I I still love those kinds of things. You appear a perfectly normal, healthy size from your pictures. How much of this candy did you consume before writing your annual Halloween candy rankings? Well, I mean, I I eat everything. This one actually wasn't as hard as some of the other ones. I think the previous one I did was Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Mm. Um, And I did, you know, 30 some odd different flavors of that. And... It definitely gets challenging to not only eat all these different things without hating yourself and to also not wear out your taste buds. You have to sort of spread it out over a few days. But um, obviously I'm not eating an entire Snickers bar. I, I know what a Snickers tastes like, but I, you know, I'll, I'll take a bite out of everything in, <laughs> in, in the name of science. <laughs> and journalism. And journalism, absolutely. Have you gotten much reaction to this column since it appeared last week? Yes. Do tell. You know, I always can kind of gauge the success of the column based on the anger I receive in my email inbox or in comments online. The more, the better, frankly. And that's that's how I know people people are reading it. Typically the comments are, you forgot to add such. Ah. So obviously there's a million different candies. I can't include every one. You know, the piece is already 3,200 words long, but, <laughs> but I omit stuff and, you know, and, and people don't like the fact that I didn't include a Fifth Avenue bar. And, you know, I, li- I like Fifth Avenue bars. I don't uh, even know what that is. You know, it's kind of, it's got that similar kind of um, brittle-y quality, like a butterfinger. Oh, Um, Or people didn't like the fact that I said Twizzlers were better than Red Vines. A number of people had had an issue with that. I maintain the superiority of Twizzlers over Red Vines any day of the week. So the overall response has been impassioned. Yes, and I think that is the goal of all of these. All of these, you know, this is a regular feature that I write, and I always try to 
write about things that people have particularly strong opinions about. So, you know, fast food fries and candy and breakfast cereal and potato chips, mm. you know, things, things where your taste has, you know, really solidified probably at a young age and you are, you know, willing to, you're really willing to go to the mat to defend your particular favorite brand of X. So, yeah, that's, that's always the goal. The goal is always to kind of get people riled up, get people talking about it, and get people, you know, defending their favorite candy. Well, I'm so glad that it got us together because I feel like Bogey and Louie at the end of Casablanca. This is the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's so lovely to meet you, and, and I, you know, I hope we can do this again. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Lucas Kwan Peterson is a James Beard Award-winning food writer for the Los Angeles Times. If you want to see how your favorite treats stack up, we'll have a link to Peterson's official Halloween candy power rankings on our website at wabe.org slash City Lights. As the Mexican Day of the Dead approaches, we thought it would be a good idea to look at another Mexican tradition, the style of music known as Son Jarocho. That multicultural tradition is the subject of Kabir Sigal's documentary, Fandango at the Wall. The film attests to the unifying power of music, culminating with a festival at the U.S.-Mexico border. Segal is a prolific author, as well as a multi-Grammy-winning music producer. I spoke with him in September, just ahead of the Fandango screening at the Atlanta Film Festival. So Fandango at the Wall is a feature music documentary that explores U.S.-Mexico relations through Mexican folk music, which is known as San Jarocha music. And this film looks at the ideas of identity and immigration, but it does it through the beautiful music of San Jarocha music. So this is really a story of coming together, uh, music of jubilation, and we wanted to... to say, you know, there's another story when it comes to Mexico and, and the United States. It's not always a story of division and animosity and xenophobia. There's a 200-year there's a history where there's shared borders and friendships and families. So our project, Fandango at the Wall, this film looks at how uh, we have shared music between our countries. And so it follows my friend Arturo O'Farrell, who's an incredible New York musician, multi-Grammy awarding musician, he and I travel to Veracruz, Mexico, to find the masters of this incredible mystical tradition, San Jarocha music. And then we recruit them essentially and ask them to join us at a festival, a music festival at the border wall between Tijuana and San Diego. And we play a concert with musicians on both sides of the border. And we transform this object, 
which is meant to divide us into one that unites us. It's magnificent. Now, Arturo O'Farrell is a revered musician, as you point out. He figures prominently on screen, and early on he equates music with justice. What was Arturo O'Farrell's role in the development of the film? Arturo and I were having dinner together, and we have probably worked on five albums together. I've produced his, his projects. And we were thinking about what to do next. And he said, you know, I came across this article in the newspaper about a man, a librarian named Jorge Francisco Castillo. And he has created a festival at the San Diego border every year. And they orchestrate this cross-border Fandango. The festival is called Fandango Fronterizo. And I said to Arturo, this sounds like our next project. This was in 2016. And so then I started uh, calling. I said, Arturo, I'm gonna go ahead and call this man. And so I started calling all of these different libraries in San Diego, trying to find this librarian. And I finally found him and I said, hello, my name is Kabir. I'm a music producer and musician. May I come to your festival? May we come to your festival, Arturo and I, and, uh, and learn about your festival. And he said, sure. And that's how the project began. And Arturo and I are the music directors of this project. So Arturo leads the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra in New York. And they tour around the world, or they used to <laughs> pre-pandemic. And um, he really wanted to honor the San Jorocha music, meet the incredible maestros of San Jorocha music. But also, we wanted to perform a concert at the border wall that tears down borders within musicians. So what does that mean? There's not just physical walls, there's walls that we create in our minds. You know, different types of music is often considered a border. So on the project, you're gonna hear San Jorocha music, there's big band jazz music, and it's all coming together. It's, we try to, we have musicians who play, who come from the Middle East, who perform at the border wall with us. We're agnostic to geography, we're agnostic to music, musical tradition. So the Border Wall concert was really conceived by Arturo. He's an artistic genius to say, you know what? Not only do we need to talk about justice um, through music, we need to demonstrate it by the music we play and the people who we include in our project. So Fandango at the Wall tears down borders. And I've just got to say one thing about justice within music. Sonar Rocha music, is music that goes back 300 years. The song La Bamba, which many of us know, actually goes back hundreds of years. It's a protest song. And many times, you know, the artists are the ones expressing what they want to see in the world. They're characters in the movie that are using the lyrics to demand justice and uh, more equality. And so they're doing it in a way that appeals to your hearts and minds. And they're talking about things that are real, very real. So I encourage you to think about how music, you've asked the question, how music and justice play a role. This project is all about showcasing how music can tear down borders and can also fell the mental walls that we create between ourselves. Mira que el sol ha traído 
continuing on the topic of the style of Son Harocho, the music strikes me as sentimental in the best sense of that word. It is emotional and direct. The musicians speak in poetic metaphors. A younger musician describes an elder as he is the trunk and we are its roots. And then you introduce us to the various instruments, including a man who crafts some of the finest of those instruments. Kabir, what was your reaction when he spoke about Jimi Hendrix? In our movie, Fandango at the Wall, there's a, a character, Ramon Gutierrez, and he lives in a, a town in Veracruz. And, you know, we asked about what are his, who are his musical heroes? And he cites Jimi Hendrix. And we were surprised to hear that because you don't, you wouldn't think about that. You wouldn't think that's would be one of his musical heroes. But I think what really spoke to Ramon about Jimi Hendrix was Hendrix's expression of freedom. And he says in the film, he doesn't always hit the right note, but that doesn't matter. That's not the point. It's not hitting the right note. The point is expressing yourself and being true to yourself and being authentic. And it just shows that a musician living in a distant part, a remote part of Veracruz can be influenced by musicians in the United States and vice versa. We hope that um, artists, creative people who see this film, who are in Atlanta, who are in New York, who are all over the United States will be influenced by the incredible legendary San Jorge artists that they see from Veracruz, Mexico. We're all connected. Indeed. What first appeared to me as flamenco dancing actually turns out to be something quite practical. What is the role of dance in the Sonharocho ensembles? The dancer is the drummer. And there's a historical reason for this. When Mexico was a Spanish colony, there were musicians playing on the drums. But the Spanish... Colonials, they banned drums. They banned drums because they thought it was an instrument that fomented protests. It was quote unquote revolutionary music. And the patterns on the drums, they made their way onto the dance board, which is called the tarima. It's a wooden platform that San Jorge artists dance on. And you can almost, there's a, there's a similarity between the pattern that the dancers dance on the trima. It's called the zapateado. The dancers are doing the zapateado on the trima. And the drums that you might hear, the drum patterns you might hear in other Latin American countries. So whenever you go to a fandango, the most important thing is who's bringing the trima? Because you cannot start a fandango without a trima. And everyone then circles around the trima. The dancers start dancing on the trima. 
And that's when the guitar or the harana begins. So the, tr the dancing is the heartbeat. The dancing is the percussion of San Harocho music. In the course of the film, we get to know these musicians intimately. You take us into their homes, we hear their concerns, and we see their families. And everyone conveys their artistry effectively. I have to confess for having a favorite among those we meet, Kabir. Would you please talk about Fernando the poet and Versadora? <laughs> Fernando is um, just a remarkable individual. He is a poet and he is able to improvise decimas. These are poems that are about 10 lines long and he can rhyme them at will. And he's able to convey such rich and vivid poetry in his music. So Fernando, um, he lived in the mountains of Veracruz and as someone who is trying to improve the lives of farmers and people who work in the lands. And he has a rich vocabulary having worked you know, in, in Veracruz and on the farm in the cooperatives and throughout the film, we, you know, showcase individual artists, but then we get to Fernando and that's when it gets real. He starts talking about issues of justice and fairness and politics and society. And as he says, we demand justice through our verse, through our poetry. And this is how we express ourselves. So he is the, um, I want people hopefully own people to see the film. He is the bridge for the film between the music and the politics. And it's through his incredible artistry that we see the sophistication of how many, many artists are in the, in the Sonora tradition. You also see an expression of the middle class in Mexico of the incredible brilliance of their music, incredible brilliance of how well read they are, incredible brilliance of just, just their um, vivid imagination and artistry. So Fernando is a, uh, is a fan favorite from the people who have seen the film already. Writer and producer Kabir Segal will return with more about his documentary, Fandango at the Wall, after a quick break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to City Lights. We're back with music producer and filmmaker 
Kabir Segal. His documentary, Fandango at the Wall, explores the multicultural tradition of San Jarocho music, culminating with a festival at the U.S.-Mexico border. How does what we learn in the film make us aware of the multiple cultural identities that go into being Mexican? There's not one Mexican culture. It's not a monolithic culture. There's no one music that defines Mexico, just in the same way that there's not one type of music that defines or represents the United States. There are actually many Mexicos within Mexico. There are many United States within the United States. And there are people in Mexico City. We were doing the post-production of the film in Mexico City because we wanted this to be a cross-cultural collaboration who were unfamiliar with the San Jarocho tradition. San Jarocho music is one of the very few places in Mexico where you see the significant influence of Afro-Mexican where slaves came on slave ships and landed because Veracruz is a port city and port state. And so I hope when people watch the film, they'll see a, a slice of Mexico that they may not be familiar with. They'll see how the middle class uh, copes with their situation, their lives, how they try to make music, how they discuss the violence that's happening around them, how they think about um, immigration. As Fernando says, people don't leave their country because they want to. Why do they want to go to a place so far away? They, they leave because they have to, because of the violence. But then there's also a conversation about, well, we also need to try and make it here in Mexico. So this is a very real conversation about immigration. And also you asked about kind of the, where we come from. Fernando's poetry, you're right. He talks about how we're all interrelated. What is a Mexican? Well, there's the indigenous, there's the African, there's the Spanish elements. And there's a mixture of all these different facets that we explore through the poetry of this music. And it's not just the poetry, it's the music, the actual tonalities. So there's a scene in this film where we show Rahim Al-Hajj, who is an oud player from Iran. And he's playing on the oud and Fernando and Patricio de Hidalgo are playing on the harana. And you wouldn't think that they would go together, but when you hear the music, you realize they're musical cousins because the music of Andalusia, the music of Southern Spain, those tonalities, those minor thirds, that's the kind of music that came during the Spanish colonialist days. So you have musically were cousins separated, not at birth, but this, this film shows that we're not just connected through the poetry and the lyrics, but also musically, we're talking the same language because we, were, we come from the same musical traditions in many cases. Yes, and it, it does that beautifully. That theme is brought out beautifully in the film. Indeed, what so many people think is characteristically Spanish music is the influence of North Africa that made its way into Spain. And those minor key melodies, the strumming, uh, it's not only extraordinary, but 
it brings to mind Yo-Yo Ma and what he set out to do with the Silk Road Ensemble, showing this commonality among all of us and, and how each of us is not only enriched by one another's music, but we may contain each other's music in some form. Would you talk about how the film culminates? Fandango at the Wall is very much a journey. I think many people who see the film, this will be their introduction to San Haroja music. And I certainly hope so. And I hope that people will be enveloped by the journey as we go from Veracruz, Mexico, we, we find these master musicians to the border wall where we have incredible, an incredible performance at the San Diego Tijuana border. And we also wanted to bring this music to where I was living at the time, our hometown of New York. So we bring, we invite the Sonorich artist to a wonderful performance at Symphony Space in New York. And there's a reason we did this. At the border wall, at Tijuana, San Diego, the border wall is actually made out of kind of a mesh. And you can put your finger up to one of the little empty spaces and you can just t touch fingertips or pinky tips with someone on the other side. And we, we started calling this the high pinky salute. So among the camera crew and everyone on the team, we would just give high pinky salutes to everyone. But we started to call this another term, which is the Fandango Doctrine, like foreign policy through art and foreign affairs through art. And so we wanted to bring the Fandango to different parts of the world. And so in New York, the film culminates in us performing a Fandango, having a great Fandango at the symphony space. And I just wanna say that I hope the film also culminates in a, in a response from the audience that there is a San Hirocho community in many, many towns across America. There's a San Hirocho community in Atlanta. There's a Mexican diaspora of San Hirocho artists around the world. If you go to Google and type in San Hirocho or Fandango in your city, you might find a community of people who put on Fandangos. And I would encourage anyone listening to go to a Fandango. You'll make a handful of new friends. <laughs> and the, a Fandango is a place where you, it's a one big party. You have food, you have dancing, you have music. So I, I hope that if you're into the music, just go to a Fandango and you'll see what all the buzz is about. That this, I've been in music for, I've been making music for over 20 years. And San Hirocho music is the most transformative and enveloping art form I've ever experienced. Wow. When did you discover your love 
for Afro-Latin jazz? I've always been interested in jazz music, the music of Miles Davis, the music of Duke Ellington. When I was in college, Arturo O'Farrell came to be a guest performer at my university, and he said, and he, he was bringing in a lot of music that was from the Afro-Latin tradition. His father was Chico O'Farrell, one of the incredible Cuban-American arrangers of all time. And it's really through my friendship with Arturo that I have become fascinated with the music of the Americas. There's something about the syncopation of the music, feeling the anticipation and the offbeats that makes the music feel like it envelops you. And so instead of counting one, two, three, four, one, you're counting on the end of the beats, one and two and three and four, and you're anticipating. When something grooves in Afro-Latin music, Afro-Cuban music, there's nothing that quite grooves like that because everything is syncopated and everyone's playing the part. And if one person messes it up and kind of, I'm a bass player, so you can kind of mess up everyone. So it's, it's a really beautiful art form and there's so many different shades of it. There's Afro-Peruvian music from Peru, Afro-Mexican music, there's Afro-Cuban um, music. And so through this music, you really hear, not just the music, but you, you learn about the immigration patterns of where people came from and where they went to and, and how the music played a role. So you're listening to history and you're also listening to the future by listening to this type of music. Well, one glorious moment in the film is when a musician says, this wall is not dividing us, it's uniting us. And I think the portion of the film that has the Fandango from Turizo, that concert at the wall, it is positively stunning. I didn't think you could outdo it. But when we get to symphony space, I mean, I, I just can only imagine that people who see the film are going to stand up and cheer at the end of this. I, I just want to ask before we go, Kabir, in the 30s and 40s, I guess through the height of the Cold War, the U.S. State Department had jazz ambassadors. Uh, it was a type of soft diplomacy that, not surprisingly, was very effective because who can resist the likes of Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald in Russia or Cuba? And those are just two of the musicians. Do you see this project on your part in the same spirit as the jazz diplomacy? I certainly hope so. I hope that this is a continuation of the role that jazz has played over the decades. Jazz has been a music of protest. It's been a music of freedom. And it's been a music that represents, I think, the best of America. And so in this way, I think that Arturo O'Farrell, Jorge Francisco Castillo coming together and performing uh, music together is an example of the way America can be. You know, it was back in the 1920s and 30s that you had blacks and whites 
performing together. Jazz was one of the first parts of American civil society that was integrated. So in jazz, you had an image of what America could be. You had an image of what America could become. And in the same way, the last many years, the um, diplomatic relationship between the United States and Mexico has soured. But when people see this film, I hope they are able to imagine what U.S.-Mexico relations could be. So in this way, I hope that our film Fandango at the Wall helps create a new narrative and helps to show what U.S.-Mexico relations can become again. And music can be ahead of our times. And I hope that this film challenges people to think about their beliefs about immigration, the border wall, and realize that we're actually more alike than, than, than we're not. We're actually more alike than different. And so I'm glad you asked about that because I, I certainly hope when we, when we set out to make this project, Varda Barkar, the incredible director on this project, that was one of the goals was to see how we can focus the music on telling a story that creates positive change in the world. Well, I think you succeeded beautifully. Kabir Segal, congratulations on Fandango at the Wall. It is a wonderful film, and I'm sure it will enjoy tremendous success. Thank you so much, Lois. A real pleasure and an honor to be on your August show. I appreciate it. Music producer and filmmaker Kabir Segal. His documentary, Fandango at the Wall, is streaming via HBO. Back in early May, I had the pleasure of speaking with punk rock balladeer Billy Bragg. In addition to his songs, he writes books on politics and justice. Here's Billy Bragg on the power of music and social change. Well, in order for accountability to happen, people have to be willing to call people out. And music has a role in that. But more importantly, I think, the currency of music, whether it's political music or pop music, any kind of music, the currency is empathy. That's what we're connecting with when a song moves us. We're very fortunate if we're moved by music because we're able to feel empathy, for emotions uh, and for individuals perhaps that we've never met, emotions that we've never experienced ourselves. That's the power that music has. And at the moment we live in a time where empathy is derided. People who express compassion for others are dismissed as being politically correct. And political correctness doesn't even exist. It's a trope, it's a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. So by bringing people together, by listening to music, by feeling empathy together, we begin to push back against those people who would divide us, those people who would single out individuals for blame. Empathy, music brings us together, and that's the role it plays. It doesn't have the agency to actually make change. Unfortunately, that's been my experience, but it is possible to bring people together. Which of your songs do you think demonstrate those ideas most vividly, Billy? I have a song called There Is Power in a Union which talks about organizing in the workplace for rights, for wages, for people being able to hold the management accountable in the workplace.
I think this is absolutely crucial because accountability to me is the, the base of all great social movements. You know, if you look in the 20th century, obviously the civil rights movement was about accountability. But if you look at the frontline struggles in the 21st century, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the environment, the school strikers, they're all attempts to hold those in power to account. They don't have a clear connection, but the thing that does connect them all is accountability. So this issue of accountability, it's not, it's not a left or right issue. It's a, a universal idea. And, and we, on the, we on the left have to be as accountable as anybody else. Music legend Billy Bragg in conversation with me in early May. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. He has some wonderful listening recommendations from soundtracks to not-so-scary Halloween movies. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 W-A-B-E. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.